season uh, where we were uh, getting land for our church, and God did something that was miraculous again and again and again. And uh, when the land uh, was told to us that it was becoming available over on 25, we, uh, there's, first of all, it was 46 acres, which was way more than we imagined. Uh, we thought maybe 10, maybe 15, maybe more, if whatever the Lord would provide and that we would build eventually, but get the land first for the church that'll be here for 50 years. And uh, as the process, I remember standing up in front of the church saying, well, that's closed because there's these covenants on the land. We're not going to be able to do it. And Pamela Greenleaf said, right down here below at the other place, well, should we pray? And I said, well, you can pray if you want, but this door is pretty closed. Bad idea for a pastor to say that. <laughs> well, she prayed, and God opened doors through, through some key people being involved in it. And one of them was Rodney Piercy, and another one was a guy named Skip Giannopoulos had a huge impact on opening up the doors for them to listen to us. But I want to take you to the day that we're standing before the Zoning Commission in Barrington Hills. And uh, I'm, I'm in construction. I, I can talk about construction. I can read blueprints. But I've not been before a Zoning Commission before. And I don't know what's required. And we're sitting there, and the first folks that go up there are with the school district in Barrington, and they're wanting to take some land and switch it over to, uh, to parking lot for Barrington High School. And I watched how the zoning commission handled them. And to say that it was adversarial would be an understatement. It was almost attacking. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm a dead man. <laughs> I'm going to stand up there and say, we think you should take off covenants for a church. <laughs> And, uh, and I, we stood up in front of them, and God worked miraculously, and they were nothing but compassionate. I remember sitting down next to my brother saying, I can't believe that just happened. But there was a key moment in the process where we have to come and make our case. And uh, Jerry Davenport, who was part of our church, I'm sorry he's not here because I'd like him to take the credit for it, um, but I'll, uh, I'll call him afterwards. Jerry Davenport... Uh, stood up, and he has a law degree, and he's dealt with zoning commissioners before. And he does that as his occupation. Well, he stood up with an economy of words, told them exactly what they needed to hear, and we got our approval without any problem. I had a plan for the things I was going to say. All of it would have been wrong. I was not the advocate that was required in that moment. For He was God's man. He was the advocate for all of us. I don't know if you know that. But he stood up for us, and in his moment, God-chosen moment, he stood up and said the things that were right and true, but they also needed to hear to check their boxes to change those covenants that were on the land that would have prohibited a church from being built on that land. And all of a sudden, not only are we given favor, but we're giving an advocate. I want to use Jerry. I could use so many others in the church. I could use... We are a church filled with advocates in children's ministry and in the sound booth and on the stage. There are people that do things that are using their gifts on our behalf that are really our advocates. I'm using Jerry today as an example that Christ is the advocate that we need. Christ is the advocate that none of us can do this for each other. 
There are things that he provides that only he can provide. And as we look at him being the high priest, the argument of the sermon is now shifting in Hebrews from talking about him as the son or the king and talking about his role and encouraging us to stop drifting, stop falling away, and to cling to Christ. And he's going to continue with these admonitions, but for the next numerous chapters, again in chapter 7 and in chapter 8, we are going to look at Jesus being the high priest that we desperately need to hold on. He's our advocate. He's the one that only one who can uniquely stand for us and hold us fast in our salvation. So let's read together from Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to, a, to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obliged to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes the honor for himself but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus, the high priest we can trust. The first section, these first three verses, I want you to see that Jesus is the high priest appointed in solidarity and in strength. Jesus, the high priest appointed in solidarity. It starts with, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to, be, to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. This first verse is, is trying to define what an advocate like a high priest looks like. What are his responsibilities? What has he been doing since the high priest was put into place with Aaron, Moses' brother? From that moment, he was supposed to offer gifts and sacrifices on behalf of the people. They would bring gifts, they would bring sacrifices, and he would bring them to God, and they would receive forgiveness. They would, they would have their lives restored. They would The unintentional sins that they committed, there were sacrifices that were offered for those, even for the intentional sins. And God had a system in place where people would come that was all foreshadowing the high priest that would come. His responsibility is to put us in a place that would be right with God the Father and go on to live a life of shalom that he meant us to have. That's what the high priest's job was. That's what he was supposed to do. And he begins to talk about why the high priest is chosen from among men and appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. It was very important that God thought it should be one of us that represents us. Somebody who knows what it's like to be human. Somebody knows what it's like to be 
tempted, someone who knows what it's like in the case of those who served before Christ. They know what it's like to sin. They know what it's like to need forgiveness. They know what it's like to fail. Every high priest was chosen from among men and is called to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. In verse 2, it says he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. I want to take you back to Leviticus 16. And if you were to look at most of the whole chapter of Leviticus 16, it is talking about how redemption happens annually with the high priest, with the scapegoat. That the high priest would lay his hands on the scapegoat as if he was laying the iniquity of mankind on this goat and sending him out into the wilderness. All foreshadowing Christ, so you know. Year after year, the responsibility of the high priest was to come and the gathering of the people would come with their sins. Anybody here got sins to deal with? And they would take those sins and he would lay them on a lamb and send them off into the wilderness. Scapegoat, that's where the phrase scapegoat comes from. That that goat would be the one who would carry the sins of the people into the wilderness and they would be forgiven again. That picture is what's defined here by this high priest offering gifts and sacrifices. And in verse 2 it says he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weaknesses. These human priests up until Christ have all experienced sins, have all experienced failures, have all experienced loss. They know the frailty of humanity. And God set up a system that was defined that the high priest would look out and have solidarity. They would know what it's like. I'm one of you. I, too, am laying my iniquity on this lamb, this goat, and sending it off into the wilderness. The problem is, with humans, is we forget. And high priest after high priest, right up until Jesus' time, did not have compassion on people. Do you remember how the people, the leaders in the, in the synagogue acted towards Jesus when he had solidarity with sinners? They thrust him from their presence. How dare you spend time with sinners? You are a friend of sinners, they said it with derision. Of course I'm a friend of sinners. I'm the high priest that carries their sin into the wilderness. And Jesus hung with people that were fallen, would had more sins. And I, I think about today how I act as a pastor or how leaders in the church can act. Do we understand that all of us struggle with sin? And, and sometimes we might be tempted to think, well, I don't struggle with that sin. You must be worse than me. Or I don't struggle with this sin. But the reality is we all come before our high priest, Christ, understanding that we are beset with weakness. We are beset with this weakness that is sin. Look in verse 3. Because of this, he, was, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And that's been true of every person, every leader in a church, every priest and every high priest has been 
offering sacrifices on behalf of people who need desperately to be saved from their sin. But recognizing while they're doing it, I too need to be saved from sin. But Jesus is the high priest we can trust. If you remember from last week, if we were quoting from last week, you would see that he is a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses because he has been tempted in every way that we have, yet without sin. Jesus didn't sin. He didn't fail. As Hebrews goes on, we'll see that he is the perfect sacrifice. He is the perfect scapegoat. Once and for all, our sins separated for us for eternity. Jesus is the high priest who is not beset by weaknesses. He is the high priest who is identifies with us and has the strength to not fail as our intermediary. In the argument of this sermon, we have seen already that Jesus has been um, has been uh, come down from heaven in chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. He has come down from heaven to live among humanity. In this passage, these 10 verses, we are going to see the extent that he identifies with us. Jesus is not just the perfect Savior. Jesus is a man who suffered in ordinary and in extraordinary ways. Jesus is the high priest appointed in solidarity and strength. This is written to a group of people that are thinking of leaving Jesus. They're thinking of drifting. They're, they're wandering. They're falling away from their faith. And I'm here to declare as I read this passage in front of me, stop drifting. Cling to your Savior. Jesus is the high priest who identifies with you and your weakness, but he's perfect and sufficient. He is the high priest that we need. Jesus is also the high priest appointed by God, his Father. In this section, we're going to see the submission of the Savior. In verses 4 through 6, and no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. No one takes the honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Verse 4 speaks to the depths that Jesus condescended. Jesus submitted to the Father and submitted to being a human, submitted to his parents, submitted to the governing authorities that were on earth, and he is the author and creator of all of our lives. He is the author and creator of the world. And he submits himself where he's put himself beneath people. And as a human, God appoints him a savior. As a human who is fully God and fully man at the same time, he submits himself to his father. And we're going to see that as we go on in the next section of his suffering, that his submission was costly. But our high priest is humble. And I can't help but compare to the leaders of the church and the priests of Jesus' day. Did they have that humility? Did they submit themselves to the Father? Did they submit themselves to God's plan? Did they submit themselves to the needs of the people? I have to confess now 
as a matter of honor before you that this corrected me as a pastor. I recognize sometimes that I can feel like I can't believe you're struggling with this thing or that thing because maybe that's not the area of my struggle. But actually, the way that Jesus modeled leadership was to have a deep identification with each of us in our weaknesses and in our struggles. And if Jesus can look at us humbled and compassionate and filled with love, how dare any of his followers not do that for each other? This should be a safe place for people to come as they are, unfinished, unfixed, and find help and health and love. And God, help us to be that kind of leaders and that kind of church. Jesus is the high priest appointed by God the Father. He submits himself under the Father's authority, submits himself under human authority, and he's like Aaron, receives his calling. In verse 5, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay, we need to slow down here for a bit. These are important, and they're going to be building blocks for this sermon in the next three chapters. This is a pivotal moment in Hebrews where we've moved from the admonition that you're drifting, Jesus is better than the angels, Jesus is better than Moses, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. You can trust him. You're falling away. Stop falling away. Encourage each other. Spur each other on. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And Jesus now is the high priest. And we're going to focus in on our faith in Christ. Next week, we're going to look at another admonition. You know, we all should have been teachers by now. And we're still babies. That's what we're going to hear next week. It's time to grow up. But this week, at this pivotal moment, we are learning that Jesus, the appointed high priest, and he refers back to two psalms that the expectation is that we know the context of these psalms. The first one is found in Psalm 2-7. This is what it says in Psalm 2-7. I will tell you of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. When he quotes this in verse 5, this is a commonly quoted chapter, a com commonly quoted psalm as a Messiah is talking about Jesus. They, when we think of Jesus, when he says, you are my son, today I have begotten you, the Father uses similar words at his baptism, at the Lord's baptism. This is my son, whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Psalm 2-7 is also a royal psalm. It speaks of Jesus being king, the Davidic king, the promised king. From 2 Samuel 7, that David is promised that someone will come from his seed who will reign forever. In 2 Samuel 7, Jesus is that answered king. But we have a problem. This is the problem, is the next quote, taken from Psalm 110, speaks of Jesus being a high priest. Does anybody know the problem with being in the line of David and being a high priest? 
The problem is, is that the line of David is the line of Judah. The line of the high priests taken from Aaron is the line of Levi. And no one was a priest outside of the line of Levi, outside of the descendants of Aaron. How? I mean, if you're Jewish and you're in the first century, there were some who thought this has to be two messiahs. There has to be a Messiah who's high priest, who's line of Levi, and there has to be a king who's Messiah that we're waiting for and praying for who's of the line of David from the line of Judah. How does God reconcile this? Well, in the next three chapters, four chapters, we are going to see God reconcile it from the line of Melchizedek. So let's take a moment and think back to this passage in Genesis. And I, there's not enough time in this sermon to do it. You're going to have time to do it again and again because this, this line from Psalms is going to be quoted or alluded to eight more times in the next few chapters. That Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It's quoted from Psalm 110.4. Now the most quoted verse, Psalm 110.1, in the New Testament of the Old Testament speaks of Jesus. Where he's going to make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Four verses later, this is the only place in the New Testament this verse is quoted, but it is the most quoted Old Testament verse in Hebrews. Psalm 110.4, the Lord was sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And under the influence of the Holy Spirit, he puts these two pieces together in this sermon. He is, yes, a king from Judah. He is a descendant of David, descendant of God, the Son of God begotten. And he is also of the line of Melchizedek. Well, if you go back to a story of, in Genesis where Abraham is just come to the promised land, his name is still Abram, and he comes to the promised land and, and he hears that his nephew Lot has been taken with his loved ones, with his family members, along with a whole bunch of other people from Sodom and Gomorrah, and they have been taken captive. And Abraham gets his mighty men, hundreds large, and he goes after them. And he takes back his family, he takes back his friends, he takes back the possessions of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, and they offer him the booty, and he says, no, I don't want anyone to say that you made me rich. It's the Lord God who has made me rich. And at that moment enters a priest not a priest of the pagan gods of Sodom and Gomorrah, a priest from what would become Jerusalem, a priest from Salem, the priest of the Most High God, and his name is Melchizedek. And Abraham at that moment tithes. Abraham tithes to Melchizedek. He, doesn't, he not only doesn't go home with some of the booty to say that I trust God, he takes 10% of what he has and he gives it to Melchizedek, the king of Salem. By the way, when David becomes king, he will make Jerusalem the city of David and his reign will follow the reign of Melchizedek. And Jesus' reign from a priesthood will follow David and follow Melchizedek. What does this mean? It means that this priesthood precedes all of the priests. This kingdom precedes all of the kings. This is one you can trust. 
It has always been God's plan that the priests would point towards Jesus. It has always been God's plan that the kings would point towards Jesus, that no king can be the king that we need, and no priest can be the priest that we need except Jesus Christ. When the scriptures say there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, it means it. From eternity past and to eternity future, Jesus is the high priest appointed by God. There'll be more of that as we go. I want to give you a flavor for what's happening. A flavor for maybe we don't understand the tension in the first century. How can this man be the Messiah? How can this man be trusted as my high priest? And the author of Hebrews is telling these Jewish people who are drifting away from their Savior, drifting away from God, and he's saying, no, you don't understand. From eternity past, this has always been the plan. And he has always been the one. Jesus is the high priest who is not beset by weakness. He has solidarity and strength. Jesus is the high priest appointed by God his Father. Jesus is the high priest appointed through suffering. Look with me in verse 7 through 10. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Verse 7, most scholars would say, refers to the time when Jesus was in Gethsemane and was praying to his Father. And I'd put one of those renditions on the screen taken from Luke 22, 41 to 44 to draw your attention to it. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. The author of Hebrews is pointing our attention to Jesus as the suffering servant. Wants us to go back and consider that moment when he submitted himself to his father. He went off to the, he knew the next day and what it was going to bring. He knew that he was going to carry, he was the scapegoat. The sins of the world were going to be put on his head. And he was going to be beaten by the people he came to save and he was going to be rejected by the people that he called friends. And he was going to be laughed at and mocked and belittled. And he was going to speak, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Solidarity with you, with me. But on that night when, beforehand when he's in the, in the garden, his human side does what we do, which is, God, I don't want to do this. I don't want to go through this. Please, no. Take this cup from me. Well, how is, I mean, we're going to be challenged a little bit, maybe, as we look at these three, four verses, with how does God ask God to not do what he intended to do before he came? 
the extent of his humanity, 100% humanity, of his identification with us. I don't know how you picture God the, God the Son suffering. Do you picture it, I'm fine, we're good, because soon I'm going to go to heaven and I'm going to be the king. Sticks and stones may break my bones, and your words certainly don't hurt me. Is that how you picture him? Or do you picture him broken and crying? Do you picture him human? Does he know what it's like to suffer? I would argue he knows what it's like to suffer much more than you and I do because he took our sins. He knew what it was like to be in solidarity with his Father in heaven and not have want or need or thirst or loss or rejection or pain. But he went through that, submitted to it for you and for me. He's the high priest we can trust. He's the high priest that when he was on the planet didn't turn anybody away. People who walked into his presence, if they came ready to be changed and they came submitting to him, they found nothing but love and acceptance because of who he is. Now, you, 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 you failed too many times. Say that to the woman at the well. No, no, it's too late for you. Say that to the guy on the cross next to him. What did he say? This day you'll be in paradise with me. I would give you living water. This 10 verses is packed full of theology. And how do you preach theology? Like it matters. Where have you placed your trust? In verse 8, we get challenged a little bit even more. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And then first phrase in verse 9, and be made perfect. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. What does that mean? Do you imagine that he's up in heaven and God the Father is saying, Jesus, you need to go down on earth, go through some hard things so you can learn to obey me. What does he mean, learned obedience? So that means he was failing until the baptism and then he started succeeding? No, he learned obedience in the face of what it's like to be human. He learned what it was like to thirst and trust, even though those who wandered in the wilderness didn't trust. He learned what it was like to be rejected and to not return anger and rejection for being rejected, but to love. He learned what he couldn't learn in heaven when he was God. But when he became a man, he learned what it was like to suffer. And so important was it to God the Father and to God the Son and to God the Holy Spirit to have solidarity with us and to understand us and to love us that his suffering was severe. If I'm up in heaven and it's my gig, I'm like, okay, can we just do this for eight hours? Isn't that hard enough? Send me down there and let's just do the day that I'm put on the cross. That's hard enough. Actually, can I pick the eight hours? 
because I don't want that eight hours. And then, whoop, I'm back up to heaven. Thirty-plus years is the days of his flesh. In the days of his flesh, and although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And being made perfect, what does that mean? Was Jesus not perfect before? Through his death and suffering and resurrection, he became the perfect Savior. He became the perfect high priest. It wasn't that he was being made perfect. He was being made our perfect answer, our perfect solution. How can it be that we drift? How can it be that I drift? How can it be that I fall away from such a Savior? How can I lose hope? Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the, eternal, the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. I want to do a comparison for a moment as we... The argument of this sermon is to stop drifting and put your trust in Christ. We began this sermon series in Christmas time, looking that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus is, was, and will always be God. Jesus is now for us our only hope. When you stand before the judgment seat, when you have that moment where the books are opened and all of our works are on display, there is only one hope. Is your name written in the book of life and have you put your trust in Jesus? Stop drifting. Please don't fall away. I could have used so many examples for this of those who have stood in our place and fought for us. It happens all the time in this church. It happens all the time and I see God's miracles working in others on our behalf, through others on our behalf. That is a microcosm and falls flat by comparison to Jesus, your Savior. There is a high priest you can trust. And because of him, you can come into his presence boldly and find the grace and mercy that you so desperately need. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I am amazed that you love us. I am amazed at your plan of salvation. I am thankful that we have an advocate in Jesus Christ, our high priest, who has become our scapegoat for our sin. And now our eternity is secure. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your word that we can cling to 
And Father, help us to be extensions of the work that Christ does to each other. Help us to be friends of sinners. In Jesus' name, amen.